From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kemble Seesmeyer, your host. This year marks 51 years since the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Roe v. Wade, protecting the constitutional right to an abortion. Unfortunately, this anniversary is now marred by the overturn of Roe by the Supreme Court in 2022, which, in result, continues to deny millions of people the power to make personal medical decisions during pregnancy in states all across the country. This year, in 2024, our fight for reproductive freedom continues. Over the last several weeks, the Supreme Court announced that it would hear two abortion-related cases this term, which could impact medication abortion access and whether people can get care when facing medical emergencies. This fight requires all of us, and today we're so excited to speak with two advocates about what we can all be doing to advance reproductive rights in our communities. First up, we have actor and writer Busy Phillips, who's joining the ACLU as an artist ambassador for reproductive freedom. You may recognize Busy from shows like Freaks and Geeks, Girls 5 Eva, and Busy Tonight. She also stars in the new remake of the movie Mean Girls. But off-screen, Busy has engaged in years of advocacy with the ACLU in states like Ohio and Texas. She joins us today to share her journey as an activist alongside our very own JJ Strait, ACLU's National Campaigns Director for Reproductive Freedom, who has led so many of our state and nationwide fights for abortion access and has been busier than ever since the overturn of Roe. Together, we'll discuss what the new year has in store for reproductive freedom in our continued fight for bodily autonomy at large. Busy, JJ, welcome to At Liberty, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Busy, I want to start with you. You're partnering with the ACLU as our ambassador for reproductive freedom. What made you sign on now? I've been working in the space of reproductive justice and um, destigmatizing women and people with uteruses health care for many years now. It's something that I feel very strongly about um, and something that I feel is one of the fights of my lifetime in terms of equality and justice and, you know, truly allowing for bodily autonomy across the board. For me, I do have a personal connection to reproductive justice. And also, I just feel like using my platform to speak out about these things is the only thing that makes sense to me in this moment in time, because there is it, it is overwhelming. There are so many things happening both in our country and in the world that deserve our attention and our focus. And I'm not a believer in like just focusing on one thing, but reproductive justice is really has been at the forefront of things that I've felt very passionately about speaking up for. And we're so glad that you're willing to use your voice to highlight and emphasize reproductive freedom right now. So I have a bit of a fun question for you, which is if this role we're like running a political campaign. What would be your platform? Obviously, we have a presidential election coming up. So if you were running a political campaign for reproductive freedom, what would be your stump speech? I mean, what's really interesting, Kendall, and I think that JJ can attest to this and probably listeners of this pod know, but when abortion is put on the ballot, um, 
Americans overwhelmingly show up to vote for bodily autonomy, to vote for a right to health care, to vote for the simple fact that uh, politicians don't belong in our bodies. Um, And that really does cross party lines, especially when you look at what, you know, a lot of Republicans and people who identify as being on the right have said about vaccines in the last four years. They don't want anyone telling them what they can and can't do to their body. They want to make that decision with their, their doctor and for themselves. And I always think that you have to follow the thread of logic through. And I know that sometimes that falls to the wayside when people get emotionally involved. But the but the fact of the matter is, you know, this is a fight that Obviously, we have to continue because these far-right extremist politicians are using our bodies as weapons. And whether you're, you know, you identify as a woman, you have a uterus, um, you're a trans person, you're someone who loves a trans person, like, our bodies are not political weapons. They are our own, and they need to remain as such. And our job now is as people to try to, wow, like in our country, make sure that everyone has safe access to healthcare, to the healthcare that they need, and whether that's abortion or other kinds of healthcare. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think that you made a compelling case. JJ, I want to bring you in here as our chief organizer in many ways at the ACLU. First off, what do you think of Busy's stump speech? And what what is the role of having ambassadors here at the ACLU like Busy? And why is it so important for us to engage with advocates in the social and cultural space? What does that do for our organizing ability? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, it adds, you know, accelerant and fire to it. Just to start there, like, Busy, you mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons that you're compelled to do this is your platform, and you're going to have a reach and a different audience than maybe we would have just uh, organizationally, and also a bigger microphone, maybe not bigger than Kendall's today. But certainly, like, the reach and the ability to talk to different audiences um, than I'm able to uh, because I'm attached to an organization, um, what have you, is absolutely critical. I think also, Busy, you're one of the first folks who really, that I remember, and I've worked in this quite a while, who just talked about your own experience on television normally and really normalized and destigmatized abortion in a way that I think was so relatable to so many of us. And it was really um, something that I think made it accessible to those folks who maybe felt like they were alone or that they had done something, you know, that they shouldn't have or that there was shame attached to it. And the truth is, is that we know that the destigmatization of abortion, particularly in a post-Dobbs world where our opposition is not only obviously trying to legalize our bodies, as Busy mentioned, but also running really shameful, stigma-laden um, campaigns in order to continue to convince people that, um, that they have legal risk that they are somehow uh, lesser uh, than or um, should be criminalized even. I mean, this is something that we need to continue to combat in our work. And Busy has been so effective at speaking about abortion very much in everyday terms. Like, here's the thing. Abortion is not partisan, right? Abortion is personal. It is nonpartisan. Yeah. I want to pick up on something that 
you mentioned, JJ, which is that so much of this is about owning our own stories and finding our own voices and sharing experiences that largely have felt very stigmatized and how Busy has done so much to kind of break that down. I want to understand a little bit more about that ability or that comfort that you have Busy and where that comes from. Because when we see someone like you in the public space who is sharing their story, we could assume that you have a level of comfort with it. Oh my God, I was terrified before I went on Busy Tonight and talked about my abortion. I was terrified. I talked to my ex-husband at great length, who's the father of my children, about just what the possible ramifications could be from it for our kids, um, for their safety, for our family's safety. And I think for me, the choice became, well, I can be scared and be silent, or I can think about this 10-year-old girl that I was reading about in Ohio at the time who was the clear victim of rape and was being denied abortion care. And I can think about how terrified that little girl is. And all of a sudden, it didn't seem as a hypothetical, didn't seem as scary to me. And it seemed incredibly necessary. And I think that, JJ, just to like piggyback a little bit on something that you started to say, like I really do believe that part of our job as entertainers as people who exist in this space, and I've been working in TV and movies more than half of my life at this point, part of what we are here to do and tasked to do is to is to humanize stories of different people. And the job of storytellers is to bring empathy and compassion and understanding to every part that they play. And that's where I get like, I get so weird about other artists or celebrities that don't think about the social impact of the work that they do or they choose to do because I'm like, then what are you doing? What are you, why are you an artist? You know, at that time I was doing my late night talk show. I was playing myself and I had a very real connection to what I was seeing happening, these extreme abortion bans and I was terrified for all of the people living in those states that were going to be put in impossible positions. And and now we see, and the doctors and nurses and caregivers as well, who've been put in confusing and impossible positions. And I think for me, what I realized was that part of how this long road of chipping away at access has been successful was by intimidating people into silence, was by making people like myself feel as though they had something to be ashamed of. When in fact, statistically, you look at it and you're like, well, wait a minute, the one, in, one in three, one in four people are going to have an abor- abortion? Well, wait a minute, that's everyone. And I think for me, I just wanted to speak as sort of, clearly and I mean I don't plainly as possible which is that it doesn't the why doesn't matter I'm a person you like me I had an abortion I promise you that someone else you love has had an abortion you know and I know that message like that messaging has predated busy tonight obviously but 
I just felt really strongly that this is actually part of my job. I want to pick up on something that you are talking about here, which is like creating empathy and building empathy. And that's like really the role of storytelling. I totally agree. Um, I think that's what we try to do with the work that we're doing at the ACLU is we try to humanize these big political issues so that they feel really close to people's lives because they are really close to people's lives. Um, JJ, I want to bring you in here because we're seeing uh, censorship increase all across facets of American life, whether that's through banning books or education gag orders or banning what what information medical providers can share to their patients about accessing uh, health care, uh, be that trans uh, gender affirming care or uh, abortion care. And so some of the stories that we've been hearing, specifically coming out of the state of Texas, I think that those are so important to talk about. And I think it's a really scary time to imagine that we might not be able to get the information that we need. Yeah. What actually moves people to take action is not the statistics of what's happening, but the story, because it puts, it humanizes it in such a way that it's relatable to you as an individual. And, you know, in this instance, you can maybe imagine yourself in a similar situation and then want to take action to avoid that. I will say the more important thing that these stories are doing, or the most important thing that I'm focused on what they're doing, is showing what the other side has in store. Texas and Idaho did not have to fight these particular legal battles. They could have said, you know what, you're right. We did not pass the right kind of law that took into consideration these very harrowing circumstances that patients would would find themselves in. Let's fix it. Let's make sure that we are respecting, you know, the situation that maybe we didn't see. But Kendall, you've heard me say before, these are not unintended consequences, right? They're intended consequences. Texas and Idaho took this case on emergency care to the Supreme Court. Why did they do that? Because they absolutely believe, the politicians who are driving this forward absolutely believe that they should be able to dictate what kind of emergency care we get, including not stabilizing us, but waiting until uh, you're literally at the point of zest or, or have to seek care elsewhere. I just also want to say that while they're saying you can go get this care elsewhere, these are states that are also trying to put in travel bans and reach outside of their own states to dictate what kind of health care I get here in Colorado, I sit in Colorado today, or that you all get where you sit. So I just want to continue to also say that these stories really go at the heart of the situation in two ways. They go at the heart of the individual experience that is harrowing and relatable. Yeah, and terrifying. And terrifying. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the chilling effect is... I think the point, whether that's the chilling effect in sharing our stories or the chilling effect in doctors not wanting to make the call on some of these on the line emergency care options, even though it is very much their job to treat their patients and to quote unquote do no harm, which is why we're seeing a lot of doctors flee the healthcare space, leave their jobs. You know, our bodily autonomy is really under threat from all sides, be that through bans on abortion, as we're talking about, or bans on gender affirming care for trans people specifically, which we, I know, Busy, you've also mentioned. But at the same time that we are facing all of these attacks, it seems to me that many young people are growing up with this keen sense of self, a sense of self that it maybe took 
all of us more years to get to. I wonder what you all make of this moment we're in where we have on one side a generation of young people that are really engaged in self-determination with this openness to gender and sexuality and on the other side, an entire political machine trying to take that openness and use it to scare parents into voting against their own children's bodily autonomy. Um, as parents, I, I wonder what you would say to other parents who might be a little uneasy about the moment that we're living in and might be, you know, falling to some of this fear mongering that we're seeing about self-determination and bodily autonomy. Busy, what comes to mind when you when you think about that as a parent yourself? Oh, I mean, well, lots of things. You know, I think that it's difficult for parents, I think, across the board, always, right? Mm -hmm. For me, I have always operated in my life from a space of, um, I'm open to learn things that I didn't know before. I think that is one of the biggest issues in our country is that we've been erroneously taught, especially older generations have been erroneously taught that like asking questions, not knowing the answers is a bad thing or that the answer lies with one person or one ideology or one religion or whatever. And that's just not the way the world works. Like it just isn't, you know, and being a parent, as soon as I became a parent, I was always this way before, but as soon as I became a parent, I realized that many things are true all at the same time. And that if I was going to have any level of success as a mom to these kids, that I had to be curious and I had to know that I didn't know everything all the time. I know a lot of stuff, but I, I don't know everything. I can look at statistics and I know that gender affirming care keeps kids alive. I know that. That's all I care about. I know that abortion care and full access to reproductive justice keeps women and babies alive. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I asked this question, because, you know, I think that people can really not connect these issues, but they are so intricately connected. And in many ways, it's unsurprising. We know that our government for since the beginning of our country has been, you know, trying to encroach on the way bodies can be and which body can exist as itself and which are we going to impose our own restrictions on. Uh, the entire institution of slavery is a great example of that. So this is about as American as apple pie in many ways. But I think it's really important that we connect all of these issues together. Bodily autonomy is bodily autonomy, be that whether you're a trans person looking to receive gender affirming care or someone who's looking to access an abortion. Um, and we are in this time where all of those things are being under threat. And I think parents are really a meaningful demographic. JJ, when we look across the country, when we think about organizing, perhaps hesitant parents, people who are concerned about the future of our country, people who are concerned about their children, um, what messages are really sticking when it comes to the issue of abortion and 
how do we just elevate those messages from here, especially as we look at these big Supreme Court cases, the case of accessing abortion in emergencies and the case of accessing medication abortion? Yeah. Well, I think we've seen some meaningful pushback from parents who, you know, in in these instances, uh, particularly at school boards or in state legislatures, parents have really shown up and said with the passion that we just heard Busy say, like, you're not here to advocate for my child. (laughs) Let's be clear. Like, you're here to sort of like put in this different order, but you don't get to decide that. I'm their parent. And I think that that's something that we've really started to see some good pushback of, you know, I don't love you know, the moment we're in, and I am worried (laughs) a a lot. But what I see in the deepest, um, you know, sort of like, dark of my days is also this just fundamental light of people really coming together and saying, nope, this is enough. I think we've always had a bit of a believability problem that we do not have right now, right? Like voters really fundamentally want and seek out this information and want to participate in a way that I think is fundamentally um, something that we need to continue to use forums like this and everywhere we can to make sure people know where do people stand on abortion who are making decisions about it, period. Whether they're at the top of the ticket or you're at the bottom of the ticket where this impacts you. Um, And you can have um, a voice in this. And then how do we continue to connect the issues as we're doing today? I think it's so fundamentally important to know that our opposition is using the same playbook um, on trying to ban transgender care that they used um, when they chipped away at abortion access. You know, abortion access was absolutely not perfect before Dobbs. Obviously, that accelerated the bans, but it was really hard in a lot of places to get that care because of the kind of chipping away. And we need to continue to demand not only that we undo the ban um, and look at different protections, but that fundamentally, this is just something that we should be able to access no matter where we live. Yeah, absolutely. And as we look at these two big Supreme Court cases, what can you tell us about what we can expect from here? I think a lot of people are very worried about seeing mifepristone, a very commonly used drug in medication abortion, be on the chopping block. Yeah. I mean, I'm very (laughs) worried about it. And when you know it's going to this Supreme Court that overturned Dobbs and now this other case for them to be taking up two abortion cases, you know, basically a year and a half after they decided that Roe v. Wade was to be overturned is very concerning. And yet we have really pushed back effectively uh, at the level, you know, listen, I work with the smartest legal minds in the business and we're going to continue to get out there just absolutely how fundamentally flawed the law that they're pursuing is on Mifepristone. I believe our team is going to be filing an amicus brief on the 30th of January, which will really continue to highlight, like, this is a case that shouldn't have even been heard, period, right? And so the flaw at the level of the law is something that ACLU can continue to really dig in on and make sure that people understand. And then listen, we've been working across our movement to get petition signatures to really push back on this um, again at the 
the letter of the law. And I believe we're at almost half a million nationwide with our partners. And we're going to deliver those to the Supreme Court um, at oral arguments to make sure that people continue to understand really what the stakes are. And also um, fundamentally that this is not a popular action and this is not how it should be going through the courts. In terms of the Imtala case, you know, um, we will continue to also think about ways that we can up our activism. And that storytelling is fundamental in this for people to really continue to understand. I don't know how the Supreme Court will decide. I cannot even begin to predict in both of these cases. But regardless, we will also work to constantly push back and make sure people fundamentally have access to abortion care however we can. And it is an election year, folks. And so we'll also be continuing to work with our partners to highlight how we can be involved there. You know, this this is really a time where we have to continue to show that demonstrated pushback in all ways leading up to the polls and just really demanding a different world, right? Like from our politicians. There are solutions to this, folks. We can see a federal bill passed that protects us and puts that foundation back in. So we're going to work on continuing to bring those things to bear and involve everyone who's listening and involve all of the favorites and every one of their phones. And, you know, we know that this kind of activism works. It takes time. It takes investment. It's not easy, but it's it's fundamentally what will make the change happen. I think also, you know, none of us want to see what happened to Roe happen um, in these cases. But I do think that now there is some level of deeper awareness that we actually can use our voices in this issue. Busy, as someone who doesn't do this as your day job, right, we're steeped in this in an everyday kind of way. How do you stay current with the news? What tips can you give to people who have similarly very busy lives? Well, I mean, first of all, they're listening to your podcast. So like they're all right. They're probably good. You know what I mean? Like I think I said right at the beginning of this of this podcast, we're in challenging times across the board worldwide, obviously here in the United States. And then, you know, let's put on top of it our own personal lives and dramas that we're dealing with daily. I understand and feel completely when people say, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't pay attention right now to the Supreme Court cases because I just can't. I don't have space. My, my, you know, I understand just wanting to follow meme pages on Instagram, you know, um, I get it. For me personally, I think that there is a balance of being active and checking in and knowing when these sort of big things are happening it's really hard because I really I really do understand a lot of people's at this moment in time kind of shrugging and being like, what does it what does any of it matter? Like it's just they're just gonna do whatever the fuck they want to do anyway. We're exhausted. We're exhausted and it and it like that's part of the deal, right? Is that it's the point. Yeah, they're trying to make it hard for us to care. Yeah, they're trying to make they're trying to make it's too much. it's too much. So yeah, I think that following organizations like ACLU making sure that I am following the cases that are coming up and and ways that we can be involved and helpful, how to show up. Like those things are really are really important and like that that's a low lift. Like you like you said, like you guys are doing it. You know, and that's why I like working with ACLU too, because I do feel like the actionable items that I'm given or I see on 
Instagram through ACLU or in the newsletter or whatever, I'm like, oh, I can do that. Like, I understand that. That makes sense to me. And I, you know, I've been disheartened myself, like with politicians, especially on the national level. I'm like, what? Do more. Do fucking more, you know? And I don't know. I think that's a good energy to bring into this year. I'm hopeful, but I also want to continue to put pressure on politicians to do more, to say more. So I am heading into this election and I'm a little like, I'm a little salty on a national level, like with all of my, all of my reps. And I'm like, you guys got to do better now. This is it. Cause now you've had some time and like show up and be like bombastic and don't be afraid of saying the things because of what you're going to alienate somebody who was never going to vote for you anyway. Who cares? (laughs) I love the fire busy. I love it. I feel it. I feel it in my soul and my spirit as well. This is bringing me so much joy. <laughs> yeah, JJ, what what can we do taking taking Busy's fire? What can people who are listening, who are riled up by Busy's passion, who feel the same way that Busy feels, what can they do? Yeah, I mean, I think it is taking that passion and the complete knowledge and hopefully empowerment that it brings and doing exactly what he just laid out. There is not a single person who should be able to run for office and not be very clear on where they stand on an abortion ban. And I don't mean equivocate and like you you said, be, you know, kind of like talking around the edges. We want clear, concise answers about what you're going to do um, and how you're going to do it. Uh, because I don't want to just hear what you're going to do. I want to hear how you're going to go work with your colleagues to make something happen, because this is probably uh, going to be the most important issue of the election. And it is important, not just because of Dobbs, right? I just want to be clear about that. Dobbs was the moment that sort of showed what the other side wants. They're not done. We cannot be done either. We have to pursue a very clear agenda and use that fire. And, you know, I want people to feel entitled I want them to feel entitled to that answer from the people who are their representatives in Congress, in the governor's office, uh, down the ticket, at the state Supreme Court, wherever it is, you're entitled to that answer. That isn't like a boutique thing. You should get that answer because you deserve it as a voter and a constituent, period. Wow. Thank you so much. As we wrap up here, uh, I just want to say thank you to both of you for your work. Busy. We're so excited to have you on Team ACLU as an ambassador. Thank you so much for all of your work organizing us and getting us prepared for the year ahead. Yeah, so grateful to have both of you in our toolbox, in our arsenal here at the ACLU. So really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And thanks for continuing to have these conversations with people. I think it's great. Let's do this again. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Carrie Daniels. Until next week, stay strong.